Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. And I am your host, Darren Fatman McDuffie. Today, we're having a great show. It's actually a pre-recorded show. I don't do a lot of pre-recorded shows, but it's nice to, to not be able to uh, have to. I can edit things out if I need to when I'm doing a pre-recorded show versus the live show. But I, I really like the live shows. But today is a pre-recorded show and it should be a good one. We'll be talking to Mark Schatzker, who wrote the book, The Dorito Effect. And um, very good book. I read the book, I actually finished the book up yesterday as I'm doing this interview and I uh, finished like the last 10 pages or so. But a very good book. And we'll get into that. But before I do, wanted to just remind you of a show we had last week with Janie Bothorp. That show has already had at least 300 listened, listening uh, listeners. And um, we talked a lot about the thyroid. A lot of people are having thyroid issues, especially females. So if you get a chance, go back and listen to that show, Stop the Thyroid Madness with Janie Bothorp. Again, very, very good show, very educational show. By the time you uh, get done with that show, you should be able to go and talk to your doctor about thyroid issues, or you might want to fire your doctor uh, because they're not giving you the needed treatment that uh, it's going to help you with your thyroid. Now, um, in addition, please connect with me on social media. I know a lot of people out there are listening to the show. Connect with me on face, Facebook, Facebook slash I'm the fat You can also connect with me on Twitter at the fat underscore man and also connect with me on Pinterest as well. Now, before we get into the show, just wanted to read Mark's bio. Mark Schatzker is a freelance magazine writer and frequent contributor to Condé Nast Traveler and a humor columnist for the Globe and Mail newspaper. He has been nominated for a James Byrd Journalism Award and has received numerous magazine awards. He is best known for his Condé Nast Traveler story and wildly popular blog that took him around the world in 80 days without ever taking a plane. Have to talk to him about that. <laughs> Steak has been a long time obsession in Shatsker's writing, and a couple of years ago, after suffering one too many bland and overpriced strips, strip loins, he decided that he'd finally had enough. Where he wondered, can the person find a decent steak? He's the author of Steak, One's Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef, and the book we'll be talking about today, which is The Dorito Effect. Mark Shatsker, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on. Like I said, man, your book was phenomenal. Um, I started reading it. Um, I'm here in Florida, so normally Sundays I go to the beach, and I started reading it on Sunday, and I took my highlighter out there as I'm watching the waves crash in, and the one thing that struck me right off the bat was the fact that Frito-Lay makes, was it $5 billion off Doritos? They make a lot of money. Wow. 
I couldn't believe that. I remember I'm sitting there with my girlfriend. I'm said, and I took the book and I uh, was talking with her and I said, can you believe that Frito-Lay makes $5 billion off of Doritos? And when I first uh, started reading your book, I thought that this book would be mainly about Doritos, but it turned in and morphed into something totally different. Tell me what made you want to start writing uh, The Dorito Effect. Well, Doritos are so instructive to where food has gone wrong. Uh, now, most people, like you said, most people start out this book thinking, oh, it's going to be a book about Doritos. But, but really, Doritos just tell us what happened to all of our food. And I will tell you that story. Um, what most people don't realize is that the very first Doritos bombed. They were just salted tortilla chips, just, just normal tortilla chips, like the kind that we dip in salsa or guacamole. And no one really got them. People in the Southwest, uh, you know, Texas, um, California, they realized that these were great for di dipping into real food, like I said, salsa, uh, or like a bean dip. No one else really got it. The thing that made Doritos was this brilliant insight that their creator had, which was to make them taste like taco. And this had never really been possible before. This was in the mid-1960s, but thanks to advancements in, essentially, in chemistry, we now had the technology to make food taste like anything we wanted to taste. And when they put the taco flavorings on Doritos, they suddenly went from being a snack that nobody wants to eat to a snack that nobody could stop eating. They were irresistible. And why this is so instructive is it tells us that flavor has a very powerful hold on us. Flavor can make us eat. It drives the behavior that is, that is a, causing so much ill health these days. And the reason this is important is because we never talk about flavor. We always talk about nutrients. What are these carbs doing to my body? What mm -hmm. is all this fat doing to my body? But Doritos show us that flavor causes us to consume these nutrients and flavor can be a driving force in the nutritional epidemic that is obesity. Yeah, I agree with you there. And one of the things that I've noticed, too, even before reading your book was um, and I made uh, several comments on this before, is that uh, going to Whole Foods, there's a lot of people out there who shop at Whole Foods. And I've noticed like there's an organic market here that they have on the beach. And I bought mangoes from that organic market, which is what we would uh, consider a farmer's market. And then those very same type of mangoes, I purchased them in Whole Foods. And I just noticed that there's so much of a difference between the mangoes from the farmer's market and the mangoes from Whole Foods. The mangoes from Whole Foods just seem like they don't have any taste. And it's like, I love mangoes, but the ones I buy from Whole Foods don't have any taste. And I know that there's something or there was something to that. And your book kind of made me see that something's going on with our fruit and our vegetables. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's something we never talk about. Uh, it's called the dilution effect. And, and very simply, all the crops that we grow and all the meat that we produce is getting blander and getting less nutritious. Now, we all know this because we all know that tomatoes taste like cardboard and strawberries taste like cardboard. But even though we know it, we never really think, why could this be important? Because we're so obsessed with nutrients, we, we don't really think about the act of eating. But the truth is we all want to eat delicious food. Mm -hmm. So just to look at it really simply, if the whole foods, the healthy foods that you should be eating are getting blander and junk food is getting more and more delicious, well, what do you think the result of that's going to be? Well, and we know what the result is. We can see it all mm -hmm. around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody seems to be gravitating towards uh, the 
stuff that's not good for us. And and part of that, um, is it because that we're doing this with our flavoring and uh, making the stuff that's bad so much good that we're seeing a lot of what we call addiction? People are having these food addiction problems. Do you think that's part of the, the issue? Yeah, I think that's absolutely part of the issue. Uh, these flavorings lure us into eating foods we wouldn't ordinarily eat. Let's just think of a couple examples. Let's think of potato chips mm-hmm. and soft drinks. If you took all the flavorings out of potato chips, there would only be one flavor of potato chips, which is just the natural, regular, salted potato chips. People would eat a lot less potato chips if there was only one flavor. Um, if you look at soft drinks, if you took the flavoring out of soft drinks you would have shelves and shelves of carbonated sugar water. Do you think people would drink soft drinks if it was just carbonated sugar water? I don't. No. <laughs> so we get into these destructive eating habits because on some level the food that we're eating is is lying to us. It's not being honest. Um, if you look at soft drinks, so many of those flavors, they come from nature. They come from citrus. They come from berries. They're imitating real food, and they're pushing the same buttons in your brain as real food, but the real difference is that nutritionally, they kind of pull the switcheroo, that instead of getting fiber and vitamins and antioxidants, you're just getting sugar water. It's the same with potato chips. Um, We've managed to make carbs taste savory. Like, look at Doritos. They taste, they have the same savory notes as meat. We, our bodies associate those notes with protein. But when you eat those chips, you're not getting protein. You're getting fat and carbs. Yeah, and it just seems like things are just getting weirder and weirder, if that's a word, that I've gone into the grocery store and I see uh, potato chips uh, seasoned like or tasting like uh, chicken and waffles and different weird combination. I'm like, who the heck? I mean, when I was growing up, only uh, potato chips that we had were barbecue. Now it's chicken and waffles and it's all kinds of weird flavors that are out there and and people seem to be a little bit addicted to these things yeah and they absolutely and the truth is it works um i mean you Mm -hmm. and i might find those those flavors weird but a lot of young people think they're great and in fact they hold competitions now you know help us decide the next flavor of chips and people send them in and everyone gets really excited about it um and it is, I mean, on some level, it's, you know, you could say it's interesting to eat a potato chip that tastes like chicken and waffles, but but it's just not leading us to a good place. No, it's not. And and we're a lot of people are getting in trouble with food because I don't know how many people reach out to me and, and ask me for diets and, and different things. And it's just like you try to go in between the lines, read in between the lines with them and ask them what they're eating. And a lot of people are just addicted to food. There's two things that I wanted to go back and discuss. And one was what we started off with, you know, kind of give people a little bit of the story of how, uh, what's the gentleman's name? Arch West came up with the, um, the Doritos. And then, um, I think there was one other thing in your book that shaped the, um, the climate of, of chicken. And that is the, uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name right off the bat, but, um, just the, the chicken, chicken contest, Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So let, tomorrow contest. Yeah. Let's talk. A, let's talk a little bit about those those two events because I think those those two events kind of shaped where we are with food right now. Start with the chicken story. Um, chicken is very popular right now. Two things: chicken's very popular, and it's also very bland. And these are, in fact, 
very modern phenomenon. Chicken didn't used to be popular, and it also didn't used to be bland. So let's turn the clock back to about the end of the Second World War, because that's when the chicken story really starts to change. Um, during World War II, red meat was rationed. It was being sent over to the GIs fighting in the Pacific and fighting in Europe, and as a result, chicken consumption peaked because people back home wanted to eat meat. Well, these were good times for chicken farmers, but they started to get a little bit scared because they said, well, when the war's over, what's going to happen? They're going to stop rationing meat, and it's, uh, you know, good times are over. So they held a competition to, quote, improve chicken. They, the competition was for farmers to develop chickens that grew faster. And, the, you know, the, the chicken that grew the fastest, grew the most in the shortest period of time, won the contest. And that's just what happened. In 1948, the winning chicken got plump about two weeks faster in about 12 weeks, whereas the average used to be around 14 weeks. That chicken won the Chicken of Tomorrow contest, and we have been on that project ever since, which is to make chickens grow faster. So a chicken that your great-grandmother might have eaten was about maybe 14 or 16 weeks old. The chickens that we eat now are six weeks old. They eat a concentrated diet of soybeans and corn, and they get big in a hurry. But what we lost along the way was flavor. The chicken that your great-grandmother ate was delicious. It had its own flavor. Chicken today is so bland that if something, that if something has no flavor, we say it tastes like chicken. And the best illustration of this is if you look at old recipes for chicken. If you look at a fried chicken recipe from, let's say, 1902, there's only salt and pepper on it. Um, we often think these people had no taste buds, that they were, you know, they were, you know, completely unsophisticated. But the truth is, their ingredients tasted better. They didn't need all this stuff on it. Fast forward now, and chicken just has, like, we have to do so much to make chicken delicious. You have to brine it. Um, if you look at a modern recipe for fried chicken, there's MSG. There's, like, 11 different herbs and spices. We have to work incredibly hard to make chicken delicious. Um, about 50% of the chicken we eat today is further processed, which is to say chicken nuggets, chicken burgers, chicken tenders. Mm -hmm. And the reason we have to do that is because it's so bland, you've got to plunk it in the deep fryer and bread it to make it delicious. Well, on some level, it's still chicken, but nutritionally speaking, it's completely different. There's more fat in chicken now. There's not nearly as many omega-3s. It's less vitamin dense. We have, ch we have changed chicken. We've made it bland and less nutritious. And that's just like Doritos. It's just like so much of what we eat. We, we find a way to make it satisfying in the moment, but it doesn't really nourish us the same way. Yeah. Didn't you go to actually a chicken a place where they uh, processed the chicken? Yeah. I've... Uh, I've been to chicken farms. I've been to I've been to all, all sorts of places. I went to um I went to a chicken nugget factory is where I went where mm -hmm. they make the chicken nuggets. Mm -hmm. What was your experience with that? Uh, it's just one of those things where sometimes when you kind of get behind the curtain of the food system, it's bizarre. Uh, <laughs> there was an eighteen wheeler unloading boxes of frozen chicken breast. Uh, they would go into a massive meat grinder. Uh, they would pour in a lot of water because there's actually a lot of water in chicken nuggets. And they would pour in all these flavorings. And then there was this, uh, they, they dump it all in these big, um, I don't even know what to call them. They're like vats on wheels and they'd move them into another room. And then using shovels, they would 
put all this ground up chicken gook into a machine that sort of uh, like squeezed it into nuggets that then went on this conveyor belt and they'd get more flavoring, they'd get breading, they'd get deep fried, and then they'd wind up in a box. And it's, I mean, it's, it's literally manufacturing. But, but the thing that was so interesting to me is that the box at the end of the line had the name of a particular restaurant on it, but the restaurant actually didn't have anything to do with the cooking of the chicken or even the flavoring. The bags of the flavorings were from a flavor company. So it's just this weird sense of the way our modern food environment gets so sort of chopped up into these different pieces where it turns out the restaurant where you eat your chicken nugget had nothing to do with the way that chicken nugget tastes. They're just sort of like the presenter of it. Yeah. Knowing what you know now, would you even would you eat a chicken nugget? You've seen how they're processed and how they're made. Um, would you partake in chicken nuggets? I don't eat chicken nuggets. I don't mm -hmm. buy them. I don't order them in restaurants. I mean, if someone gave me a bite, am I going to die? No. But I don't think we should eat foods like that. I got kids, and I think the more food like that that they get, the worse off they're going to be. So it's just not something we, we keep in our house. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, getting into the Doritos, back to the Doritos story. Um, I want to tie in because I know that uh, there was this Japanese company that came up with the toll, the glutamic acid or what we call MSG, monosodium glutamate. I don't remember in the book or not, but um, did that particular entity work with Frito-Lay to create the Doritos? There is MSG in the original Doritos and in uh -huh. most Doritos now. Um, so that's part of it, absolutely. But it's yeah. not all of it. I think the flavor chemicals, which is to say really the aromatic chemicals they put in Doritos, are a bigger part of that equation. Yeah. Now, the Doritos back then and Doritos now, it seems like the Doritos back then had less ingredients. But now there's a ton more ingredients. Do you have any idea why that happened? Yeah, because technology is getting better. We, we keep discovering other, uh, other chemical compounds that, um, that make food taste better, and we add them in. So the Doritos of today are, are, you know, to most people, more delicious, even more addictive than they were 40 years ago. Yeah. And with uh, that being said, and getting back into talking about the chicken, you mentioned how fast the chicken is being raised or how fast a chicken actually matures. Is there a difference in for those people out here who are meat eaters, I know some people who might be listening to podcasts are vegetarians, but is there a difference in raising a chicken at six weeks, like you say, or giving it 14 to 16 weeks? Is it does it taste better or just simply that we've we've got so much technology going into everything today, even if you gave a chance the, the chicken more chance to mature, would it still be bland? Um well, I'd put it this way. The chickens that they used to grow to 14 weeks was genetically a different chicken. Uh, and I've eaten those chickens. I eat them all the time because I have a friend of mine who's a farmer, and he grows them for me. Mm -hmm. If you took a modern chicken and raised it to 14 weeks, I think it would, it would be like the size of a turkey. I've, I've never actually eaten that. I don't know how it would taste. It probably would taste better. Um, and it would taste better for sure if you gave it a better diet, if you, you know, let it go outside and eat bugs and grass and that sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. Now, getting back to just flavoring solutions, because you, you said that the modern chicken tastes bland. What are some of the things that, that are done behind the curtain, so to speak, that might make the chicken taste a little bit better? What are some things that are added? 
What? Okay, so MSG will be one of them. Uh, there's other umami triggers, things like uh, disodium inosinate or terula yeast. But what they really do is they will, um, they'll actually make uh, for something like fried chicken from a really delicious chicken, and then they analyze what those flavor compounds are, and then they knock those off in a factory, and then they add them to, to bland chicken to make it taste better. Th this is what they do with all flavoring. So, for example, if you buy a soft drink that has a grapefruit flavor uh, or an orange flavor, it's not because they're putting orange juice in there. It's because they went and analyzed orange juice or oranges, and they said, okay, well, there's these 15 compounds in oranges that make an orange taste delicious, and then they go and knock those off and put them in, and they put some orange coloring in it, and you drink it, and I drink it, and we go, wow, that tastes like orange. And it does taste like orange, and it does taste good, particularly to kids. But here's the important difference. They put the flavor of an orange in there. They don't put the nutrition of an orange in there. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. Now, with these, these flavorings, uh, when the chicken is actually processing these flavorings, is that because I, I've gone to places where I pick up a, a small chicken and I've never really looked at the, the label, sorry to say, but, but um, is that an ingredient on the label? Like you go in and you pick up one of these small chickens that you're going to bake and will it say flavorings on that on the label? Go look at the label. Um, mm -hmm. There, you can go to supermarkets and buy chickens where the ingredients will include flavorings. They've already put flavorings in there because they know these chickens are are just incredibly bland. I have to start looking at that. I read everything that I purchase besides chicken. I'm just totally blind when I go in. I'll just pick up a chicken and just you know buy it. But yeah. um, well, most people do. I mean, this surprises everybody. Uh, no one has any idea they're actually. They're all they're pre-flavoring meat. Mm. Are the flavorings harmful, Mark? Because I know MSG. They they've been done some studies in MSG is an excitotoxin, but just flavorings. Let's say if they wanted a chicken to taste like uh, barbecue or something of that nature, are these flavorings outside of MSG harmful to us? It, it depends how you think about something being harmful. Are mm -hmm. they toxic on their own? No. These are the same compounds you find in real food. The reason they're a problem is because of the behavior. The reason they're a problem, like the flavorings they put on Doritos aren't toxic in and of themselves, but the reason they're a problem is because they make you think these tortilla chips are more delicious than they are and you eat a lot of them. And when we do that to all our food, we eat too much and that is a problem. It causes an unhealthy behavior, is what I tell people. Um, this might surprise you, but they also put flavorings in cigarettes. Um, you can find memos yeah. from the 70s where the tobacco companies, they state bluntly, they know that if they flavor cigarettes, kids will like them better. Are those flavorings toxic? No. But the nicotine and the other compounds in tobacco is toxic, and when and those flavorings serve as a vehicle to get people to smoke. So in that regard, they are harmful. Yeah, are they still doing that? Because I know in the book, I remember reading that in a book, but I think that I, you said that they were that was outlawed. Is that true or? Um, what was outlawed was marketing flavored cigarettes to kids. So things like uh, chocolate and grape flavored. They got rid of that, but you can find now um, like mini cigars that are flavored. But here's the other thing. 
Normal cigarettes are flavored. Go to one of the big tobacco companies' websites and look at the ingredients in cigarettes, and they look an awful lot like food in the supermarket. Things like yogurt and soy milk, they have flavorings in there that make them taste better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of flavorings in the the soy milk and the almond milk and, and different things because is that flavoring a vehicle to make us become addicted to these to these products they are a vehicle that makes you want to consume them and Mm -hmm. especially in these really kind of energy dense products the more them you consume the more habituated you become so they are they're part of that they're part of that they they help make it happen um but more than that i think they also they screw up our internal wiring and so one of the things I want to talk about, the question we never ask is why does food have flavor? We think we know so much about nutrition that we're like, oh, forget about how food tastes. I know I need to eat carbs and I know I need to eat protein and, and antioxidants and all that. And we tend to think that flavor gets us into trouble, that it's because food is so delicious that we all eat too much. But what we never ask is, well, why is food delicious? Why does it even have a flavor? Um, If you look at your genome, and that is the instruction manual to make you, the thickest chapter is on flavor. So your body's putting an awful lot of resources into making this flavor sensing equipment. What's it doing there? It must be there for a reason. And the answer is that in nature, flavor is the language of nutrition. Before we had any idea what vitamins were and what protein and carbohydrates were, we had to eat a complete diet, otherwise our species would not be here. We would have died out. And the way that worked was through flavor. We know this from animal studies. If you make an animal deficient in a vitamin, it will go and seek out a food that has that vitamin. Animals don't know anything about vitamins. All they know is this tastes delicious to me right now. And that's how our bodies work. And that's how our brains work. So for example, if you look at something like a tomato, there was an, uh, a Uh, an article in the journal Science a few years ago that showed that the flavors in a tomato are all linked to essential nutrients in a tomato. So a delicious tomato is a healthy tomato. That system works perfectly in nature. But when we knock off a tomato flavor and we put it in ketchup-flavored potato chips or a frozen pizza, we create the experience of nutrition. We tell our brains this food is good for us, but we do not deliver the nutrition. We just deliver calories. Yeah. So in that regard, I think we're, we're screwing up our internal wiring. Yeah. Let's go back and let's rewind because that's what I, I really wanted to talk about uh, with regards to animals and how animals do this. And I believe that you vid- visited someone who did a lot of studies on this about uh what animals prefer and the type of things that they'll eat. And there's a lot of what you quoted uh, saying as nutritional wisdom within the animal kingdom of why they eat certain things. And I believe that gentleman's name was Proven. Proven? Yeah, Fred, yeah, Fred Provenza. Provenza. I, I didn't want to say it because I knew I would probably mess his name up. But let's talk about Fred Pro- Provenza and um, what he he was doing with regards to these animal studies. Yeah, Fred had, he's had an absolutely fascinating career. It started in the late 70s when he was doing his PhD project, and it was kind of a, not the most interesting project. He, he, was, he spent three winters with a bunch of goats in the middle of Utah to see if they would eat this kind of like a weed called blackbrush. 
And one day he noticed that these goats, there were these little rodents that lived there called wood rats. And the goats were eating the wood rat nests. And he thought, why are they doing this? And when he investigated it further, he found that they were eating the urine, the, the urine-soaked like um, nesting. And this sounds totally bizarre, right? Why would any creature want to eat urine? But, for, you know, Fred's a scientist. He knew a great deal about um, goat physiology, and he knew that the nitrogen in, in urine could be turned into protein by the goat's stomach. And he found that the goats that would eat this wood rat urine were actually healthier. Well, this got him thinking about the relationship between what an animal wants to eat and what an animal needs to eat. Now, we tend to think that what you want to eat and what you should eat are completely different things. But what he found out is that in the animal world, they're not different, that the goat's desires serve that goat really well. And he did all sorts of amazing experiments. So in another experiment, he would make sheep deficient in phosphorus. And then he'd give them a choice of feeds. One of them that was, let's say, flavored with coconut had phosphorus, and one of them that was flavored with maple didn't. And he'd find that over time, when the sheep needed phosphorus, they would gravitate to the coconut feed. And now you might think, well, maybe sheep just like coconut. Well, then he'd reverse it in a different pen with different sheep. He'd make the maple flavored like uh, the, the maple flavor had the phosphorus in every case the sheep would like it wanted to eat the flavor that had the nutrients that it needed and this makes complete sense that we would have some inner working some inner program that helps us find the nutrients that we need because otherwise there wouldn't be such a thing as sheep or goats or humans if we couldn't meet our nutritional needs yeah, and I, I mean, that kind of struck a chord with me because I know there was a time when I used to eat potato chips like a madman. And uh, I go to someone who helps me with my nutrition and, and balancing my body. And we found out later on that I was deficient in salt. So apparently I was gravitating towards the potato chips because I needed more salt in my diet. And um, it makes perfect sense that a lot of people might be craving these foods just simply because they're not getting the nutrition from what what they're eating and the body causes them to crave the craves these these foods Does that make sense yeah and, and there's lots of examples um, in the uh, in the 1700s when British sailor, sailors were mm -hmm. dying of scurvy which is a vitamin C deficiency they would crave fruit and vegetables they, they wrote about it back then these these unbelievable cravings they had they would just sit around dreaming of fruits and vegetables because they're you know they were literally dying and their bodies knew what they needed. Um, and that's, that's what our flavor system is there for. The reason an orange tastes like an orange and the reason you like it is because it's your body's way of, of knowing this is what I should eat. And there's some level of awareness that your body has of what's in an orange or what's in a tomato or what's in meat. It, it's, a system, it's an ingenious system that has served us very well for thousands and thousands of years. But it's only been really in the last 60 or 70 years that we've confounded it because we've essentially gotten too smart for our own good. Does our brain store those those uh, flavor memories in it? Like we know how certain things taste and does our, does our brain actually go back to that at some point? Yeah, it does in, in ways that we don't understand. But if you think back to those British sailors, you know, we don't know how their brain pieced it all together, but we do know that they craved what they needed, which was fruit and vegetables. Yeah. Um, 
going back to McCormick and I remember reading this in a book and it just kind of made me go back to two things that I like. One was vanilla because I remember my mom used to make these cakes when I was was uh, younger and we would always use that McCormick imitation vanilla and then uh, the gas chromatography is what you call I came across that by not food but by forensics I'm a big buffer I'm a big buffer forensic files and I love that show and I always tell people if I could go back at some point and do my college career all over again I'd probably uh, be in forensics because I just love you know that whole thing of figuring out who made crime did crimes and whatnot but um, let's go back to that story because I believe that there was vanillin which came from pine cones and then McCormick got a hold of this technology and then it just blew up. And I think that that's how all this flavoring stuff got started. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, no. That, that's a, so I told a story in the book of how we came up with better vanilla flavor because v vanilla was always very expensive. Real mm -hmm. vanilla comes from vanilla orchids, which are grown in countries like Mexico or Madagascar. It's, it's awesome stuff. We all love it, but it's expensive. So about 100 years ago, a little more than 100 years ago, a German scientist figured out how to make a compound called vanillin, Found which it. is the major player in vanilla. He figured out how to make this from pine cones. There was a different chemical in pine cones that he altered, and when he changed it, it turned into vanillin, and it, it suddenly, you, you know, you didn't need to go to Madagascar to get vanilla. You could make it from, from pine cones, which was a breakthrough. The problem is that vanillin is one chemical, and in actual vanilla, there's hundreds. Vanillin's the big one, but all these other ones have an influence. They, they give the vanilla complexity, and, they, and they, they make it better. So for years and years, no one really knew, other than, other than vanillin, what the heck was in vanilla. But in 1955, the very first gas chromatograph went on sale. This is a machine that takes the... the the compounds that exist, not just in food, but in anything, in minute amounts, and lets us isolate them and measure them. So it wasn't long before we figured out what these compounds were that we started making them. Well, I told a really interesting story about how um, there was a, essentially um, like a coup in Madagascar, and the price of real vanilla got really high, and McCormick's a company that sells vanilla, and they said, uh-oh, we're in trouble here. We're going to run out of vanilla. So they set out to make an artificial vanilla. And I told the story of how they, tr they tracked down one particular flavor compound that had kind of a, a leathery, just this note of leatheriness that was essential to real vanilla. They used gas chromatography to isolate this compound, figure it out, and then they started making it. And they came up with an imitation vanilla that was like a perfect knockoff of real vanilla. And the reason this is an important story is because it shows how good technology got. Mm -hmm. You know, 50 years ago, a fake orange flavoring was just really crude. It sort of kind of tasted like orange. Now we've gotten to the point that we can create complex, believable, but most importantly, delicious flavors. And we do it all the time, and people love them. And most of the time, we're not aware that they're being put in our food. Yeah, because, I mean, as a kid, uh, seeing that little 
bottle imitation vanilla. And I can still remember the packet came in, what it tasted like. And my mom used to use it all the time when she was making making cakes. And it tastes just like real vanilla. And you actually got a chance to visit McCormick, who made this this vanilla. And you got a chance to, I guess, kind of talk to one of the scientists in charge of this. I think her name, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, Gillette. Uh, yep. the woman yeah talk about that a little bit talk about that experience because I, I think that was one of the, the reading that it was seemed like it would be such a cool experience it, it was it's i mean it's a fascinating company to visit because so many of the people who work there are so incredibly well educated they're they've all got graduate degrees in chemistry of one form or another um and they have an understanding of food that is is breathtaking um, now, McCormick's interesting because they do herbs and spices, which I love, mm -hmm. but they also do chemical flavorings. Um, and what they often do will analyze, they will analyze something real, like let's say a lemon, and figure out what these chemicals are and then figure out a way to knock them off so they can make a lemon flavoring that they will, you know, they might sell it to a soft drink manufacturer or to a fast food restaurant. Um, it's incredibly interesting to see how this process works and how good the people are at it. Um, I guess what I'm alarmed by is what is the effect of using all these things when we put all this stuff into food, what is the overall effect? And that's a question that industry hasn't really asked and really no one has. We, we, uh, we tend to think it's okay. We're not even really aware of it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems that these, these, this is in everything because you pick up barbecue sauce as flavorings or natural flavorings. And we don't really think about it because it tastes exactly like how we want it to taste. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, or I'll give you a great example. It's in yogurt. So yeah. buy a, 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 let's say a peach flavored yogurt and you see little bits of peaches in there and you think, well, they put peaches in here. They really didn't put many peaches in there. In some cases they don't put any, what they do is they put a peach flavoring in there so that makes you think there's fruit in there when there's not. But here's the thing. It does the same thing to your brain. So you, you could say that modern yogurt's like a Dorito, which is to say it's kind of telling a nutritional lie and it tastes better than it deserves to taste. Yeah, it's just like – and Mark, with these flavorings, does is flavoring – are flavor affected by transportation time? Because I hear a lot of people saying that you lose nutrients. Let's say you, you know, our pineapple or whatever is cut in uh, Mexico and we ship it to South Carolina or some other place or where you are in, in Canada. And by the time it gets there, it loses its nutrients. Is it fair to say that flavor might be losing, you might be losing flavor when it comes to like transportation time and even freezing something and, and the ripeness of it. Because I've noticed sometimes going to get fruit and I hate to, to pound on Whole Foods, but <laughs> going to get fruit from Whole Foods, I've noticed times where it's not been ripe. Some of the stuff isn't ripe. Like I said, I like mangoes and I noticed that some of the mangoes are green. And even if I bring it home and put it in a paper bag so it can be ripe after a while, I've just noticed that it just doesn't taste the same. So can these things be affected by transportation time, freezing and um, the ripeness of, of whatever we're eating? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's... um. And you know that's a big problem in our in our food system. Part of the problem uh, it's easy to point the finger at you know the supermarkets, but part of the problem is also us because we insist that our food should be cheap. So for, when we go and buy tomatoes that cost ninety nine cents a pound, 
and we turn our noses up at the ones that cost a buck forty-nine. We're telling the tomato producers of America we want cheap tomatoes, and they give us cheap tomatoes. And we have to start realizing that there is value to food that goes beyond the mere cost. You know, I don't know anyone who buys the absolute cheapest clothes you can buy. I don't know anyone who does that. But lots of people I know buy the absolute cheapest food you can buy. And, and you know, the clothes go on your body. The food goes in your body. Yeah. Well, I know some people out there, man, who like cheap clothes. <laughs> but I, I know exactly uh, what you're saying. And speaking of tomatoes, we talked about Doritos. We talked about chicken. And let's get into tomatoes because there's some things I want to ask you about. Mr. Uh, is it Henry Harry Clay, Clay or Clay? Clay or? Yes, Harry Clay. Clay. He's, he's down there in Florida with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw that he was in uh, Bonita Springs or somewhere. I'm actually... I think one of your made mention of something that was in Jupiter. I'm not far from Jupiter. I'm probably about an hour away from Ju Jupiter. I'm in Fort Lauderdale, right in, in a little small suburb called Davie. But um, talking about Klee um, and his quest to bring about a better tasting tomato. And I know you visited this guy and I'm going to pick your brain for that experience as well. Yeah, so Harry Klee's at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Mm -hmm. uh, he's one of the world's foremost experts on flavor in tomatoes. He's an absolutely fascinating guy, and I spent a few days with him, you know, researching tomatoes, and what an amazingly eye-opening experience it was. Um, the, the simple story on Harry is that in the late 80s, he was working for Monsanto, and he developed a genetically engineered, slow-ripening tomato. Because the hope at the time was if you could make tomatoes ripen slowly, you could get them to ripen on the vine and then pick them, and you'd still have time to get them to the supermarket without them being overripe. They found basically that this did not work, that the, the flavor problem in tomatoes went a lot deeper than just being picked green. And what ha uh, Harry Klee discovered is that over about half a century of breeding tomatoes to be more abundant and to have a better shelf life, we never selected flavor in all our breeding programs. And it was like a reverse uh, evolution, uh, reverse evolutionary pressure. We lost flavor in tomatoes. It, like tomatoes have, have essentially forgotten how to be flavorful. So Harry, um, he grew hundreds and hundreds of varieties of heirloom tomatoes and tested the, excuse me, and he tested them to see which ones were the most flavorful and then he would analyze them using a gas chromatograph and he figured out what are the flavor he figured out the flavors in tomatoes that we love and what he's managed to do is breed tomatoes non-gmo tomatoes that have some of the modern uh let's call them agronomic characteristics that we value mm -hmm. you get a good crop the tomato plants are disease resistant you have a good shelf life but he also got flavor. And the reason this is exciting, it means it might be possible for, for Darren or for me to go to Whole Foods or any other supermarket and buy a tomato that actually tastes like a tomato. Yeah, and just, obviously, you mentioned GMOs, and he worked for Monsanto. Were you able to get a take on what he thought about genetically modified um, organisms? I think, you know, if, if Harry would answer that question, he would say you know, genetic engineering is a tool, and like any tool, like a gun or like nuclear technology, the technology itself is not evil. It's what you do with it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a lot out there about GM, GMOs, and a lot of people have uh, things. I, I stay away from them. Um, getting into secondary compounds, because what I got from your book, uh, and I think the main point, the whole grasp of the book for me was to be able to take these secondary compounds and kind of couple them with flavor, the way that things taste. Can you kind of explain the the genesis, so to speak, of these secondary compounds and how they pertain to, to flavor? Yeah, absolutely. So a, a plant secondary compound, it, it's sort of this big name and people are like, wow, what the heck is that? Basically, that refers to all the chemicals in a plant that aren't there to, to make it reproduce or to make it grow. And the reason they're called secondary is because no one had any clue what these things were doing for decades. So, for example, take opium. No one knew why opiums produced morphine. Um, it didn't make any sense. You know, like they, they had uh, chlorophyll to, to, for them to make energy. They had lignin so that the, you know, the stem stood up straight. But why, was there, why were there these opiates, these, these chemicals that made you feel weird? And it was true for so many plants. There was just all these chemicals in plants. And nobody could figure out what the heck they were doing. So they called them secondary. They're just like, who knows what these things are, right? Mm -hmm. Well, they figured out in the 50s that these were there for strategic reasons, that plants would put things like opium in them um, or poisons so that animals wouldn't eat them. Well, notice that I said strategic because st strategy isn't always defensive. Sometimes you want to attract mm -hmm. Um, so, for example, fruit, the flavor in fruit, it's not there. A peach doesn't taste like a peach because the peach needs to taste that way. It tastes like a peach because the peach wants you to eat it. It's a strategy to get its seed dispersed. The fundamental point of all this is that the way our bodies interact with the natural world, it's a chemical relationship. Chemical is the, the main language of nature, and it's far, far more complex than we understand. And it's way more complex than just sugar, carbs, protein, and vitamins. Flavor is the, is the way we experience all these chemicals, and flavor is the way we were made to experience and respond to food. So it's incredibly important that we don't mess with that system. We know what happens when you do. We only need to look around and see that obesity is the second leading cause of preventable death and the number one leading cause of preventable morbidity. So we need to take a deeper and broader understanding of how food works and how we work with it. Yeah, and then when two more points I wanted to, to, to uh, get to before we ended the interview, Mark, and that was glutathione. Because it was a amazing to me to find out that they kind of broke down an onion and found that an onion had glutathione in it. And come to find out, glutathione is one of those things that are in a lot of things that we eat. And it's one of those, I think it's a super antioxidant that our body actually needs. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's interesting. There's a new flavoring called kokumi. Um, it's similar to MSG. And they found that one of the main triggers of it is glutathione. Now, this is really intriguing because our bodies make glutathione. It's our number one cellular antioxidant. But here's the weird thing. If you eat glutathione, there's no, there's, it's not like there's more glutathione in your body because your body breaks it down and then it might make it again. So you're left there going, well, why, why would my tongue sense glutathione 
if I don't need to eat glutathione to make glutathione. And the reason is that glutathione is an antioxidant in other creatures too. So by sensing, let's say, the glutathione in, um, oh, let's say, an orange, you're, it, it, you're sensing the antioxidant status of that orange. You're sensing how healthy it is. So you could say it's like a marker of how ripe it is. Um, is, is it overripe? Is, is it still good? So it's, I mean, this is, this picture is still emerging. We're still putting the pieces together, but it's a really interesting piece of this puzzle to suggest that there's so much more going into how we experience food than what we presently understand. Yeah. And the, the last thing, Mark, was um, one of the other things that I found uh, really amazing too, was this whole relationship. And I don't know if you can call it relationship, but in the book where you were talking about olive oil and ibuprofen yeah and uh talk about that because i thought that that was really amazing and if the people out there i hope they go and get the book but if they don't this is something that they should they should know yeah this is a great story so many years ago a guy named gary beecham um, who was for like 24 years the director at the Monell center in philadelphia where they do studies on on taste and smell they were contacted by a british manufacturer of a flu remedy and they were getting all sorts of complaints. People said that the that it tasted bitter. Now they had recently changed one of the active ingredients from the the acetaminophen, which is the active agent in Tylenol, to ibuprofen, which is the active agent in in um, like Advil. And they did some tests. They just started basically eating pure ibuprofen, and they said, you know, the problem isn't that this stuff is bitter. What this actually does is it, is it just creates this peculiar sensation in the back of your throat. It feels like your throat is itchy. It's like a chili pepper tingling the back of your throat. Well, that was that. That's where that ended. But then several years later, this guy, Gary Beecham, went to a conference in Italy, and there was a physicist there who made his own olive oil, and they did an olive oil tasting. And Gary took a sip of this olive oil, and he got the same itchiness at the back of his throat. And he was suddenly struck by this thought, which was that, oh my goodness, there is a compound in olive oil that is an anti-inflammatory, just like ibuprofen, and that it's, it's um, operating on the same receptors. And so they, he, he took some back to Philadelphia, they did testing on it, and they found that, yes, there is an, there is an anti-inflammatory in olive oil, it's called oleocanthal, um, it works, you know, it, it works on your body's pathways the very same way that ibuprofen does and people theorize one of the reasons that the mediterranean diet is healthy is because of this low level dose of this antioxidant sorry this um anti-inflammatory what's most interesting about it is that the first time people experience this olive oil that has this uh compound in it they don't like it it's like people eating a chili pepper the first time they say "Ooh, i don't like that but your body learns to like it olive oil aficionados love it. This is a good example of nutritional wisdom. This is your body learning and going, hey, this thing here, it's good for me. And how does it know that? By the way it tastes. And these are not just olive oil, but I mean, you have people out there touting the benefits of turmeric and, and different things, oregano, basil. So that's the kind of same basis that this whole olive oil and ibuprofen. Yes, that, there, that there's a chemical, a biochemical basis to the foods that we love. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, great book, man. I really enjoyed the book. And I believe that you, you can get all these books on Amazon or 
uh, what's a Barnes and Nobles you can go and order the book but I really enjoyed the book and there's a lot of good information in, in here for the audience and I couldn't really get I would have to do probably a four hour interview with you Mark just to get everything that's in here but it really gave me a good basis for knowing the importance of flavor and how we're being kind of fooled and I, I deem these things Franken by Franken flavors that uh, we're being fooled into eating a lot of foods that aren't really good for us and we're missing out on nutri nutrition. But I really enjoyed the book and I wanted to thank you for coming on for the interview today. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate hearing that and it's, uh, it was a great interview. So thank you very much for having me. All right. Thank you, Mark. Okay. Take Bye. care. Bye.